So have you ever been watching a movie? And about halfway through the movie, someone walks in and sits down who hasn't been watching the first half of the movie. And then you start hearing questions. <laughs> Sorry, honey. <laughs> you start hearing questions like, who are they? What's going on? Why did they do that? That seems really crazy. And by now you're going, okay, neither one of us are going to know what's going on. But it's kind of like walking up to a conversation. You ever done this? You see two or three people are having a conversation and you walk up and you want to become part of it. So you jump right in. And the first time you say something, everybody looks at you like, what are you talking about? It's hard to jump into the middle of something without having an understanding of what's going on. Whether it's a movie or you're reading a book, you know, how many of us go out and buy a good book because somebody recommended it to us and we turned about the middle of the book and start reading from there? It doesn't make sense. We miss it. What I'm going to be sharing about the next couple of weeks, starting today up to Christmas, is obviously the Christmas story. But I think part of the problem that can hinder us in really embracing the significance of the Christmas story is we start in the middle. The title of my message this morning is simply The Beginning of the Story. That isn't the beginning of the story. That picture does not represent the beginning of the story. Now, reality is, and I think most of us know that, this story was created in the heart and mind of God before the foundations of the earth, okay? So we don't know when it really began. And it's not going to be completed this side of heaven. We know that. But to help me and maybe help each one of us, you know, the beginning of the story is where I want to sort of start today. And let's just say this was the middle of the story. And for us, the end of the story... It might have been his mission coming to a conclusion. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we know the end is going to continue way beyond that for all of us, every single one. Actually, for believers and unbelievers alike, just with a different ending. But I want us to look a little bit back at where this amazing event became and where... What was the source of it? What was going on in God's heart? And what I'm going to look at is sort of the beginning, from my perspective today, of this amazing event. It might surprise you, and you may wonder, like, where in the world is the Christmas story, Mike? With the way I'm going to share it this morning. But my hope is this. That by looking back at the beginning, the significance of all that takes place that we remember and celebrate at Christmas, that the significance of it is greater than it may have ever been before. Because I want to say a statement like this, and maybe it'll get your attention and surprise you, but really, this amazing story of Christmas started in the great, great, great grief of the heart of God the great grief of our Father's heart. So we're going to start and we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 6 at a few verses, not very many, but starting in verse 5. I'm going to read it first, and I believe this is what's on the screen is from the New American, and then I'm going to read it in a couple of other translations because 
The words here are so graphic and they're so powerful that where they came from, from the heart of God, it must have came from a very personal place, from his heart. It says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth, and it broke his heart. I want to read it from a third translation, the Message Bible. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil. They imagined evil. Evil, evil, evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. It grieved him. It grieved the heart. What is it that could bring such grief to the heart of God? Now the easy answer, and it's a correct answer, is sin. But I think it's so much more personal than that. You know, in our own lives, if someone says something or does something to us, and it may be a sinful thing that they do or say, but if we don't know them real well, they're not close personal friends. I don't have a deep relationship with them. Yeah, it hurts a little bit, but not that bad. But if someone close to us, if my wife, someone we have more intimate relationship with, says or does something, it cuts to the very heart of who you are. And I think from the words that we're reading here and the power behind these graphic words, something very, very, very personal cut to the heart of God. It grieved his heart. What could grieve his heart so deeply? What is it that makes it so personal? I believe, from what we see in Scripture, that when God created Adam and Eve, when He had created mankind, He created us and weaved right into us, hardwired us, if you would, to love God, to love Him. That was His design in creating humanity, to love us and to love Him, to have this intimate, intimate love relationship. That was what he did. That was his heart. And in the beginning and in the garden before sin ever occurred, that was the kind of relationship Adam and Eve were in with God. They loved God. They recognized God for who he was. They loved him. They knew him in a personal way and he knew them. There was no barriers, nothing there to hinder the intimacy. 
they were able to do and be what God created them to do and be. And that's what we created all of humanity for. To be in this love relationship with God. But something happened. Yes, we know it was sin. We know what Adam and Eve did by disobeying and eating the fruit. But taking a little liberty with my own opinion, I believe their act of disobedience was not nearly as damaging to the heart of God as what was really taking place in that act of obedience. If the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, if that's the greatest commandment, that's the important thing, what must be the most evil thing? Not to love God. Not to love Him. We're in this relationship. He was created for this relationship of love between us and our Heavenly Father. To bring Him great joy. To bring us great joy. Something happened. What? When you look at verse 5, something clearly, clearly went wrong. The Lord observed the extent of the sin, the evil in mankind. Something really went wrong. What was it? I want to offer as a suggestion that that something that went wrong was this. That the love that we were to have and designed to have for the Father was directed somewhere else. So the question is, if I'm right, where was it directed? What is this seductive, deceiving thing that mankind loves so much that that love that was designed for God was directed here, elsewhere? The love of God in our hardwiring designed us that every thought, every action, everything that we did, every motive, every choice, everything would be driven by the simple fact. We love Him. We love Him. He's it. Heart, soul, mind, strength. We love Him. That was the design. You know, I sometimes joke with the kids, especially if I ask a question and they are looking at me and I always just joking, they say, an always good answer is Jesus. God. It's the answer. The reality is, in the state of Adam and Eve before sin entered the earth, when God was the sole focus of their love, and if that was the case in our own life, if that was the sole focus of our love, God was that primary focus. Anybody could ask us at any time, hey, why are you doing that? What's going on? Why are you doing that? Simply answer it, God. It's the motivation behind everything that we do. And in a perfect world where God's design hadn't been corrupted, where the love that we were supposed to have for God hadn't been redirected somewhere else, that would be the answer. God. So what is this seductive 
powerful, deceptive thing that has been the recipient of our love. I think Paul gives us a real clue in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, he says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Somehow, some way, we are really good at making me the center of my universe. You don't believe it? Our children are born into that, right? Mine. I want everything. It's all about me. It's mine. It's me. And that, sadly, I believe, is where our love has gone. Instead of directed to God, it's a love of self. We become consumed. It's all about me. We're obsessed with our own will and our own way, getting our own way. We become obsessed by... We want to be in control. We want to make our own rules. We don't need to follow anybody else's rules but our rules. We are obsessed with our own pleasure, our own comfort. All of these things become our obsession. And the answer to the question then could always be, why are you doing that? What's going on? What are you thinking? Me. Me. It's all about me. And it's broke, grieved the heart of our God. Our Heavenly Father. We corrupted that love. And when we live for self, when it's all about me, sin follows. Evil follows. The reality is this, and it sounds like an oversimplification, but all of the evil in the world is caused by one thing. Not loving God. Not loving God. The reality is every sin, whether you want to define them as little sins or great big sins, every one of them is a rejection of our God. It's a rejection of His love. It's a rebuke of His love. Of this personal intimate relationship that we have with Him. It's broken. And it broke His heart. It grieved His heart. It grieved his heart to such an extent that he came to a conclusion or a solution that makes for a really bad ending of a love story. What is his solution? In all of this, God is going to show us that he is, he's more than just a sovereign God. He's, he's more than just the almighty God. He's more than our creator He's a God of amazing love and amazing grace and amazing mercy. But right now in the story, it doesn't sound like it. His heart is so grieved. But he knows something. And we should know something. And David, in the Psalms, made it very clear. Most of us are aware of David sinned against God. He had a relationship with Bathsheba. An adulterous affair. She got pregnant. Most of us know the story. He even had, basically had her husband murdered to try to cover his tracks. It was a horrible, horrible situation. Sin was manifesting. But in Psalms 51, 
after a prophet named Nathan had came to him and pointed out his sin in a very tactful way, David spoke these simple words in Psalms 51, verse 4. He said this, Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. We could look at that and say, wait a second, David. Hey, look around. Look what you did. Look how many people's lives are influenced. How many people's lives have been changed. What do you mean? Every sin is against God. Every sin, irregardless of what it is. It's a betrayal of His love and it's rejection of His love. Looking at verse 7, Genesis 6, verse 7, where you're going to see His response, and you may have not known it until now, but it's one you're all familiar with, I'm sure. It's called a flood. In verse 7, He says in the NIV, The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men, animals, and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. There's the end of a love story. It became a tragedy. Approximately 1,650 years have transpired according to the chronology that you can check out in the Scripture, from creation to the flood. When you go through and look at how long people lived, it comes out to 1,656 years. So since that original sin in the garden, mankind has been going downhill further and further and further into this place of sinfulness to where God, in the written Word, says every thought of their heart was evil. Every intention was evil. Every imagination was evil. And it grieved and broke his heart. Broke his heart. Now I think if you would do a word study on that word grieve, you would see a couple things here. One, it grieved his heart in the sense of the horror of sin. The affront of sin. But on the other hand, it also grieved his heart to see what had happened to those who had been created in his own image. We have been created in the very image of God. And as he looked upon mankind, it grieved his heart to see what it had become. And it brings him to this place that we just read in verse 7, where the divine judgment of God is about to be poured out, literally, with water, a flood wiping everything off the earth. We need to understand when God says things like, I I wish I would have never created Him. We need to look beyond the obvious. There's something much deeper in the meaning there of His sorry. I did this. He's sorry because of what it's become. It's not like He's saying, geez, that experiment went bad. Thought it was a good idea 1,600 years ago, but look at the mess I created. No, not at all. He was sorry because of what had taken place and it grieved his heart. But because he was a holy and righteous and just God, he had dealt out a righteous and holy, just punishment. The flood. And if the story ended here, it would be terrible. Terrible. But it doesn't end there. Thank goodness for the verse 8. In verse 8, just a very few words. 
It just simply says that he saw this guy named Noah. And he found favor. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the Message Bible it said, but Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. Another translation says Noah was perfect. Well, he wasn't perfect in the sense that we think of perfect. He sinned just like we sin. But his desire and his awe and respect for a holy and righteous God was there. He wanted to do right in a corrupt world all around him where God saw fit that everyone else needed to be destroyed. He looked at Noah and he saw and gave favor. So in this story that seems so horrible, which it is, we see the holy and divine justice of God, but we also see now His mercy, His grace, and His love, which He demonstrated on Noah and his family. And if you look and read beyond this small section of Scripture we're looking at this morning, you're going to see after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. And He says, I'm going to bless you and your descendants. Were they perfect from there on out? Uh-uh. <laughs> they weren't perfect. But He says, I'm going to bless you. And if you look through the genealogy that you'll see in the next couple of chapters, you're going to see a whole bunch of names that you can't pronounce and you've probably never, ever heard of before. But if you look through it sort of carefully, you're going to come to one name that's going to jump out at you, I hope. Abraham. Abraham. The father of God's chosen people. Abraham. God also made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant with Abraham was similar, but it went further. In his covenant with Abraham, he says, not only will your descendants be blessed, Abraham, but through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. And we see clearly in the New Testament who that seed is. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Out of this, this mess, the darkness that was before the flood, the justice of God was met, the punishment was meted out, but we see His favor and His grace being demonstrated. And we see it extending all the way up today and beyond. The problem was a big problem. In Genesis verse, Genesis verse 5 again it said, when he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and I think this next phrase is key, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And depending on your translation, every thought of their heart, it wasn't just that their actions were bad, they were doing bad things, they were doing stupid things, they were doing evil things. He saw past all that, and he said, it's the heart. It's the heart that's the problem. Every thought, every imagination, everything coming forth from at their time, they thought of the heart as the center, the control center of their body, their life, everything that they did. He said the heart's the problem. 
and they couldn't cure their own heart. And neither can we. Neither could we. Our heart was the problem. And in our own strength, before we were saved, there was nothing we could do about changing our heart. Oh, we might be able to change our behavior a little bit. We might be able to try harder. We may be able to try to follow a few rules, get real religious, get real legalistic, and see if we couldn't do better. But that doesn't change the heart. We needed a new heart. We needed someone to rescue us. We needed a rescuer. And that rescuer is Jesus Christ. That rescuer is a baby in the manger. When we see the Christmas story and we see the baby in the manger, it's not the beginning, it's more towards the middle. The, the beginning was the evil man and the grieving of a father's heart. But even in that condition and even that state, His grace, His love, and His mercy was demonstrated for us. He changed everything. He changed the world. The prayer that the the psalmist writes about for David, when David writes in Psalms 51, he gets to this place, and I think it's verse 10, after he has acknowledged that I've sinned against you and you alone, he says, God, create a new heart in me and put a right spirit within me. We needed a new heart. We needed a right spirit. And that's what began in earnest when we look at that baby in a manger. All of a sudden, when we understand the backstory better, and I don't think anybody didn't know this, but we need to be reminded of this. The backstory, it makes more sense out of the familiar Christmas story. You know, why, why were the angels coming and singing, glory to God in the highest, glory, glory, glory? How, why? What were they so excited about? It's just a baby. No, it's the plan of God the Father being revealed here on earth. What were the shepherds so excited about? Why did those wise men travel so far to bring gifts and kneel at the manger or the crib of a baby? It's just a baby. No, it's way more significant than that. This is the Messiah. This is the one who is going to make it possible for us to have a new heart. For us to have the right spirit within us. Why did Herod get so politically upset and go out and kill all kinds of babies? Because he knew from the prophetic prophecies in the Old Testament that this was the one. This was the Messiah. He made a way through his death on the cross for us to receive a new heart. He made a way through his death, his burial, his resurrection to be restored back into a love relationship with God. And I understand, and I think we all understand, that he was crucified once. And as we said this morning earlier, that sacrifice was sufficient for all time. But even though it was an individual act, an individual event, there's an ongoing process in each one of our lives. When we accept Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, we have a new heart. The Holy Spirit lives in us and dwells within us. But that intimate love relationship with him still needs to be developed. That process that we call sanctification or cleaning up our act is a process. But the Holy Spirit will accomplish as we cooperate with Him. So when we look at Christmas and as we go forward the next couple weeks, 
And we focus on what's taking place, the birth of this child born of a virgin. The significance of it is so much greater than we sometimes understand. It's a great story. It's a sweet story. But it was birthed from the heart of a grieving father who loved us so much that he demonstrated the mercy and grace. And he made it available to every single one of us. It's available to everyone in this room. Hopefully everyone in this room has accepted what's been offered. Salvation through Christ, a new heart, a new spirit. But we have to personally accept it. Nothing anybody else can do, nothing we've done, nothing religious, none of that stuff matters unless we truly acknowledge our need for a new heart. That we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. And we acknowledge who Jesus was and is and what He did. And surrender our life to Him. And that new heart is there. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And that process of sanctification and that process of developing an intimate love relationship with the Father can begin in earnest. And that's His heart. And that's why Jesus came in the form of a baby. Came to this earth. That's why when we celebrate Christmas, we can celebrate the certain hope we all have of knowing who we are in Christ. How valuable we are in His sight. How precious are His saints, His children. How much He loves each one of us. If we'd have been around before the flood, we'd have probably suffered like everybody but Noah and his family. But now we know and we can live with confidence and the certain hope that we will spend eternity with God, with the Father, with Jesus. And that relationship, that purity of that kind of love, there is going to come a day when it will be restored completely. But let's not just rest and wait until then. Let's do what's needed now to develop it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed, so thankful. God, when we see that sweet pictures of a baby in a manger, may we be reminded of what that child represents. Your amazing grace, your unconditional amazing love, your perfect plan of redemption for each one of us. God, I thank you that you responded to David and created a clean heart, a new heart, and that, that you do the same in every one of us who accept Christ as our Savior. I pray that if there's anyone here that has never done that, they would do that today. And if they don't understand, they would ask someone to explain it to them. Lord, we are such a blessed people to be able to call you Father, knowing that as your sons and daughters, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We rejoice that we belong to you. And that now it is possible for us to love you the way that you desire to be loved. Lord, I pray now that you'll be with us during our meeting that will follow. And for those that won't be staying, Lord, just watch over them, keep them safe, bless them. And no matter where we go and what we do this week, Father, that we are reminded of the good news 
of Jesus and what has done in our lives, that we would be always looking for an opportunity to share that good news with others so that you can do in their lives what you've done in ours. All for your glory and honor. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.